Welcome to Rooftop Church. This podcast is part of our Sunday sermon series, where each week we dive into the Word of God and the powerful message of Christ. I may not have the intention, I may not have the wherewithal to see and perceive what is going on. This imprinting, this influencing is automatically taking place. Now, when you hear the phrase, monkey see, monkey do, you will never receive it the way that you had before. There's a little bit of fear that should set in. Oh man, something is constantly happening. Something is taking place. I'm influencing somebody without even myself knowing. Someone else in my circle of friends and family, they're in the same way influencing me without even me understanding. That's pretty wild. And there's something very powerful about this. And this idea of imprinting is so powerful, first, because it can happen without anyone knowing and second because this impact and imprinting can also last a very long time there is this transference of character nature even dispositions and its very essence as well and i believe this is how habits are formed i believe in the greater context i believe this is how cultures are set in place when there are repeated practices, when there are repeated exercises in the context of community of people, this is how cultures are established for a certain group of people or even a nation at large. And I say, this is very powerful because once these things are set in place, once cultures and patterns are set in motion in a group of society, there's a very big, there's a, it's very difficult to undo or unroot what has been set in place. In this, we accept not only the feasibility, but the reality and inevitability of prefigurement. Meaning, for every behavior, every habit, every culture, there always exists a version of this in the prior timeline. Let me say that again. For every behavior, for every habit and culture, however little or big that group of people in the society is, there always exists a version of very thing in the prior timeline. That is a concept of, that is the reality of what prefigurement is. And the title today uh, for the sermon is The Truth of Prefigurement. And today I wish to impart, my, my aim is to, very simple, is that for you to understand the reality, there's a spiritual thing that is going on, there's this truth of prefigurement happening as it had always taken place throughout human history. And for you to accept that and for you to realize, hopefully, if you subscribe to this notion that we would humble ourselves and say, God, help us. Because how we live our lives, what we do, what we say in my lifetime is making an impact on somebody else. 
And I believe this is certainly true of the Bible as well. We learn from the events that took place prior to our time, many generations prior to us, and we're able to identify certain patterns and such. And they foreshadow the future, their experiences, their pains, their joys, and the lessons realized during their time can be projected onto the future. For example, that you may have heard that Adam is a prefigurement of the mankind. Meaning we can learn from what Adam had encountered during the course of his life, particularly what he had done, what he had experienced in the Garden of Eden, Adam serves as a prefigurement of the entire humanity. So when Adam fell, you may have seen the fall of Adam, right? We call the fall of Adam the fall of man. Because Adam represents every human being that would come after him. I don't know if the exact number, I know the, the, the international census right now, we're somewhere 7.2, 7.3 billion Right? So, but I don't know if that's right now in the year 2023, but if you were to talk about, I don't know, 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 years of the history of mankind, what, do you th- what would you put that number as? I don't know, 10 billion? Many more, right? Probably, should we say at least double that? Probably more? I mean, so one man's life story should serve as an example of a lot of people. I know you're, you're a lot of people. That was, that's what I could conjure up with. Back to our text today. Now we're going to zoom in even more. In the same way, I believe Moses' life foreshadows or prefigures that of Israel. Moses is a very famous character, and I particularly love Moses. I shared with you two weeks ago, my Hebrew name that I gave to myself was Moshe. Okay, not Moesha, Moshe. Moses, because Moses, unlike other powerful men of God in the Bible, he, he was not just like this holy man, this reverent man, just man of God from the very beginning. Moses had this like, what do we call it, like chink in the armor where he had his own flaws. He had little temper problems. Uh, He didn't really, he went through a whole identity crisis for decades. He had to figure out exactly, am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am Am I a slave or am I a prince? Am I an heir to this throne? And he had also this speech impediment that probably would have um, interfered with his uh, own like professional career. So he had this like personal like insecurity and he had this identity crisis. I think for those reasons, Moses to me is so relatable, so fascinating. And I think for Moses, his life also, he, I think he understood that his life was representative of the people that he would eventually lead. And, and so we definitely want to pay attention here. We want to know exactly what's happening in Moses' life, what he would encounter in, in the course of his life, and how he would respond in those individual's circumstances. And this is a, just a brief summary of Moses' life. You know that Moses was born at the time of when the God's people and the nation of Israel were under the slavery of a very powerful kingdom called Egypt. And this slavery would eventually last more than four centuries. And he was born, as soon as he was born, after three months, and there was a king's edict that every male child 
that was Hebrew were to be put to death. So when Moses' mom gave birth to Moses after three months, that he knew, she knew that everyone in the family knew that this child would be put to death. So wanted to not risk his life, out of the last desperate hope, Hail Mary attempt to save her child's life, put him in a little basket, wicker basket, and just let it flow down the Nile River. And his sister, Moses' sister, watched and followed as this traveled down the river, and it was scooped up by who? The Pharaoh's daughter, the princess herself, and she picked him up, and from that day on, at three months old, he would become the prince of Egypt. Most of you guys have, should have seen the movie, Prince of Egypt. came out already two decades ago. Jeez, we're so old. Are we not? Right? So he now grows up as a prince of Egypt, but he's probably discerning his identity. I think, I'm guessing that um, somewhere as an adult life, he found out that he's not really Egyptian. By the time he found out, it probably was through the gossips, probably through the, the mistreatment and the jealousy and the different treatments in the context of his own family, his new royal family. So he's now a grown man. He's called the prince of Egypt, but there's a turmoil going on because he doesn't really know who he really is. One day he goes out and witnesses a, a fellow Hebrew a slave at the time being mistreated by an Egyptian soldier. Something inside him just broke. Something in, uh, inside him just arose, and he said, you know what? He's probably filled with rage and anger. So he, he looks around, and he, when he saw that no one was there, he strikes this Egyptian soldier, puts him to death. Murdering is one thing, but I think Moses goes a step further he conceals the murder that he had just committed. He buries that dead soldier in the sand. And he goes out and he, he sees um, a two Jews, two Hebrews, Hebrew guys, fellow slaves fighting one another. And he says, hey, man, what are you doing? What are you guys fighting each other for? And these two guys say something that would put fear in Moses' heart. What? Man, who are you to tell me? He, they don't even say that, hey, you're not one of us. You don't know. He says, who are you to tell us? You killed a man. When he encountered that, there was a fear. I, I don't even know if there was a fear of God. There's so much fear that struck in Moses' heart. He ran away. And he knew that Pharaoh was very upset and that he was calling for Moses' life. So Moses runs away into the uh, plains of Midian. And he will live for the next 40 years as a runaway, at this time, not a runaway prince, I think, as a runaway, what, slave for 40 years. Remember that? And God would call him. He was in secret. He was married and he had a child, you know, he had children there in the desert while shepherding. Did you guys know that Moses was a shepherd? Fascinating. God always, God loves shepherds. Yeah, anyways. And Moses was in hiding. One day God calls Moses. Moses, I want you to meet me in Mount Sinai. That's what we're talking about. So he goes up. 
Moses was used to hiking long distances. Of all the places, God always called Moses to meet him in the mountaintop. And he says, I'm going to call you to lead the Israelites. And Moses refuses. You don't know who I am. I know who you are. So you don't know what I've been through. I know what you've been through. God, you don't understand what I can't do. I know what you can't do, but I'm calling you. My presence will go with you. And Moses goes out. He says yes to God, and he begins to lead the Israelites for how many years? Do you know? Oh, it's up there. <laughs> My wife is like, just God, look it up. Bro. It's over there. Forty years. A lot of the biblical scholars unite on their understanding that Moses spent the first 40 years as a prince of Egypt. He would then spend the next 40 years as a runaway shepherd in hiding. Then he would spend the final 40 years of his life as the leader of the nation of Israel, desperately trying to understand and fulfill the promise of God that one day they will no longer be slaves. They will be occupying this place called the promised land. So if you're Moses, he must have understood that, hey, it's like the feeling of deja vu. You understand what I'm saying? Moses is seeing how things are playing out in the course of the Israelites, and he, make, he keeps making the connection. Hey, I've seen this before. This is exactly what I encounter. He's probably thinking, is it a coincidence that 40 years that were spent, now, they're, now we, we as a nation, 2 million Israelites are spending 40 years in the desert. Which, by the way, if this is, it, it's not because the promised land was geographically far away from where they were, from Egypt. They say modern day, if they just traveled and knew exactly, they dotted on the map, it would take them no more than six days. If they just like, if they're like extreme hikers, you would go. Casual hikers, no more than two, three months. Can you imagine how frustrating that is? The Israelites have, must have known where they were going. They're circling. This is why so many Jews and so many Israelites during the course of these 40 years were complaining so much to Moses. Moses, where are you taking us? What are you doing to me? So you understand the journey of Moses, then you understand the life of Israel. He probably understood that. What I am doing, what I, how I respond to the call of God is having a direct impact on the lives and the reality and what they would encounter as a nation of Israel. As God's people, we have to understand and accept that the choices that we make, how we choose to live our lives, during the course of life, which we trek through, our responses when we press into tight little spaces, we have to understand and accept that it's making an imprint on somebody else's life as well. 
Let me just convey to you the concept of spiritual blessing and spiritual curses as well. Let me convey to you what the Bible talks about, this uh, spiritual transference. The importance of the prefigurement and the reality of it. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Genesis, I'm not going to list it for you because it's it's quite lengthy, but I'm going to just read you off, okay? Genesis chapter 22, 18 this is God telling Abraham, said, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. What God has promised to Abraham, that is guaranteed. God is saying, what I am promising to you is going to be true for all of your descendants. We call that what? The Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is present and felt real, and it's, and it's true for all of Abraham's descendants. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of God. Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Luke 150, and his mercy is for those who will fear him from generation to generation. So we see these blessedness, blessings, the favor of God emanating through multiple generations. And the people of Israel understood that the promises and the word that was released in the prior generations that's essentially what they clung onto. That's essentially, there were no new promises given to them in those particular generations. They kept referring back to, remember God, what you told Abraham. God, remember the vow that you renewed at the time of Isaac, Joseph. They kept going back to the promises that were made in the very early time of history. So there's this concept of spiritual blessing is true. And these blessedness carry out through generation to generations. As real as his spiritual blessings are, also the spiritual curses and how real they are. And this one, I'm just going to share one verse here. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Come on, somebody. He not only, the Bible not only talks about the blessings that will be carried through the multiple generations. But he talks about, now because of your sin, because of your disobedience and wrongdoing, Not only will you suffer the consequences of your disobedience, now the consequences will be evident, not two, not one, not two, third generation, fourth generation. Guys, think about this. Meaning the blessedness you and I experience, there's an element that I have not done anything for the blessedness or the blessings that I'm seeing right now. Come on. This is more, this is, I mean, you know the, the Galatians 6.1, do not expect to reap what you do not sow, right? I mean, this is like that to the umpteenth degree. 
The blessedness that you and I are experiencing may have nothing to do with what we have done in our lives. That's the power of generational blessings. Now, as equally true as the generational curses and wickedness, can I say that generational sin? Is that we may be under the curse and the bondage of something that we ourselves have not done. There's a transference of the sins committed by our prior generations. We may be reaping, we may be in the middle of the consequences of those sins as well. Are you with me? And this is a biblical truth of prefigurement. Your actions and your decisions, the way that you live your life, has far greater consequences of the generations to come. Meaning your life is not just a movie. It's a prequel to many movies that will be made. Oof. What is your favorite trilogy? What are the, some of the greatest trilogies or quadrilogies? I don't know. How many guys are Star Wars fans? I mean, can we say Star Wars is pretty great? Okay, all the Star Wars nerds here, okay, we don't judge you. I mean, some great ones. Name some. Man, Toy Story, man, they hit home runs in all four of them. Maybe they should have stopped at three. What else? Oh, I haven't seen four, so I'm not judging. So what, what are the good ones? Avengers. That's great, right? Avengers. Oh, I love Iron Man. Captain America. What else? Do we know bad tr- sequels and trilogies? What are, what are some movies that we should have, that you should have never made? Star Wars Episode 1. <laughs> Star Wars Episode 1? Oof. Those are fighting words, Esther. I, wish you, I would be very cautious. What sequels are bad? You guys don't know any bad movies? Anyways, I digress. The life that you are living, is it worth making? What kind of sequels are you making? What kind of storylines have you established for the stories to continue to be told throughout generations after you. In 2002, when I was a little young lad in seminary, I took this class called Family Therapy and Pastoral Counseling. It was led by Dr. Osberger. I went to Fuller Seminary, the best seminary, the real seminary, Pastor Daniel. (laughs) Just kidding, maybe a little bit. And this was a very memorable class because first, it was in this class that I wrote my longest paper ever in my life. <laughs> That's a good reason to, mem- uh, to be memorable. It was like 30 pages long. And I panicked on the first day of class. It was like, by the way, the final, final assignment will be 30 pages long. I said, oh, God, help me. <laughs> well, this class was really important to me because it made me uh, research and study my whole family for multiple generations. The biggest project, my final project in that class was for me to identify and create this family tree that would go up four generations, including me, and identify and name every single person that ever existed. 
I'm like, Professor Dr. Osberg, I don't, most of these people are dead. So it required for me to research, interview my parents, and identify. I crafted this family tree. And then, to the best of my ability, my job was to interview my family members and relatives and find out all the significant relationships and how each connector worked. And I did my best. I'm not going to lie and say, hey, well, I identified every fourth gen of my great-grandfather. No. But I did my best. And in my research and my interviews, I found out a lot of the secrets, a lot of the things that I had not known. Good things as well as bad things. And it was a bizarre experience for me. And, and it, became to, it, it began to, like I began to notice a lot more when I interviewed my immediate family members. I have both my parents, my two siblings. As I was studying and, and, and we were told to just um, identify and evaluate every connector, every relationship, right? And I began to see, oh, these are the patterns that we saw. Oh, these are the story kind of assembling of, resembling of the story that I heard about grandpa, grandma, or great-grandpa, great-grandma. And I realized that exercise, I mean, long story short, it, it put in me this like, oh, dude, like we're not just talking, we're not just living good life for me. I'm living out the embodiment of the life that my predecessors have committed to live. And I think I began to see, oh, I think, I wonder, like, I wonder if we're going through this. I wonder if this is showing up because of that. I wonder because, oh, oh, there had been unfaithfulness in this marriage, like, most couple of generations. Oh, I wonder if this is the reason why we have so many divorces and on and, and some sides of my family. I began to see that and immediately put a sense of fear of God in my heart. I said, God... And I just said, God, help me. And I think that was the first time I was, I must have been 24 or so. I said, first time, I said, God, I want to not repeat the mistakes and the sins that my predecessors have made. And God, help me identify the blessedness that you have bestowed upon my family line. And God, I want to make sure that I continue to continue that history and lineage upon the generations to come. I was 24, 25, single, probably depressed, angry, frustrated. I was, would I ever get married, right? Now, fast forward, I, I marry by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I became a dad. And I don't think I was as scared when I had children than when I was first found out about this when I was 24. I began to see with my own eyes. I began to feel with my own heart. It's like, oh, that's what it means. And some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not until you see what you don't want to see exactly in, the, in, in your child's life. You begin to see the habits and the tendencies that you don't really like, and you begin to see that. I think my son was, I think must have been two or so. We were just hanging out. And this tripped me out. And we were just hanging out in the, in the shopping park, the shops in Chino, and we are just hanging out because we would go there a lot and just to kill time and stuff. I swear... This little boy was too, and he, one time I caught him walking around, walk like this. I said, oh my gosh. Like where? Where did this come from? And he probably couldn't even reach it, so. 
And it may have been just one. Maybe I may have overreacted. But I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, I sometimes walk like this. Are you kidding me? Like, little child, like, God, did I give that to him? (laughs) And then as my kids get older, we're constantly reminded of the people that we are in the reflection that we see in our own children. Things that we did not intentionally teach. Things that we did not intentionally impart. You begin to see them in your kids' lives. One time, my wife came to me, and I think it's something that I was doing that she was bothered by. And she came to me and said, honey, I'm not even mad at you. Like, she was, like, so frustrated with my dad. It's like, you're just like your dad. I'm not even mad at you. I'm not, I'm not like, it's not, oh, like, your dad, oh. And I totally understand. And these days, like, and I'm pretty sure, like, what we see in our kids, I think I get a lot of, like, there's, oh, Scott, I get a lot of that. Oh, it's because of you. And sometimes I share my own as well. It's like, oh, honey, like, oh. I mean, most recent argument we had was a, I said something in passing. Oh, he's just like you. Guys, it was a good day that day. It was, we were having a wonderful night. And I just said one statement, oh, she's just like, he's just like you. That delayed about like an hour of our normal bedtime. <laughs> we had this unplanned marriage counseling, <laughs> existential questioning, what, what are we doing? Simple statement of when I say, oh, he's just like you. And guys, all I'm saying is conveying the truth of your life matters. Are you with me? Your life matters. What you do, the decisions that you are making, the course and the trajectory of your own life, this is just a prefigurement. This is just a prequel of what more to come. I don't know about you, but this does two things for me. First, I already conveyed to you, it puts the fear of God in me. It fills me with the sense, excuse my language, but oh crap, I better watch out. Because I'm not just dealing with the wellness or well-being of my own life. I understand that God, please. Second is, it humbles me to no end. It makes me just go as low as possible and beg and plead with God. Say, God, help me because I don't get it because I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. God, I'm not strong enough to fight this battle. God, I, I can't be responsible for so many more lives that's to come. It's a frightening thought, guys, when you understand that your life matters. 
And I will convey this as well. This is true not only in your life. This is true not in your own personal life. You're not affecting just your family members. But I believe this is also true in the church life as well. I believe, you know, when we talk about distinct culture of a church, when we talk about distinct uh, uh, lineage and, and values of a church, guess what, folks? You have just as much at stake. You and how you live your life has just as much impact as that of a pastor's life. I'm just going to say it. I'm just one man. Do you think out of the 60, 70 people, adults that we have in this church, do you think how I live my life, that impact is greater than the 68, 70, the rest of you? Meaning, we are influencing each other. We are impacting each other. We're leaving imprints. We are imparting stuff in the spiritual realm as well without even else knowing. Monkey see, monkey do. How we worship God, how you worship God, guess what? It's being weaved into the fabric of the identity of Rooftop Church. How you are devoted, how you are faithful to God, how you are serious about your faith life, guess what? That has a direct impact and imprint of the identity of the church that you belong to. This means the secret life that you live, your secret devotions has also secret sins that you're committing in the ways that you're dishonest in the, in, the, in, the, in the life that you live in hiddenness away from the public eye of the church. How you respond to God. This is being played out in the identity and the making of the church that you and I belong to. Scary thought, isn't it? I, I, I've just put, I mean, God is putting the fear of God Yeah. <laughs> if we are frivolous in our worship, we are less dedicated. This is why your devotion, my devotion matters. In the way we serve in this church, come on, it matters. If we serve, we do all the work, but do it begrudgingly, guess what? We are begetting. Th those seeds are sown. We cheat God in the way we like treat him in, in our worship. Oh, it's being, oh, it's monkey see, monkey do. You think, oh, we're not seeing any of that here, right? Oh, just you wait when all the members of children's ministry, these guys grow up, they're teenagers, young adults. When they come, guess what? Guess what imprints, what pathways are these guys going to follow? It's on you. It's on me. You guys with me on that? Can you accept those premises? It's challenging. It puts the fear of God in me. And it humbles me to no end because I can't do this on my own.
And they get the priest team to come on up. And I just have one last story to share with you. Is this making sense, guys? Yes? Talk to me. It's okay. What other pastor is going to encourage the congregation to talk to them? Talk back. Does this make sense? Still no answer. I attended um, a funeral this past week. You guys, I, I share with you that our, our friend Jason, um, he lost his father. And I knew this man. I knew Jason's father. Not well, but I had first met him about 10 years ago in the March of 2013. I met him again when I took him. I took uh, my church team. Uh, Jason's father was a missionary in, in Guatemala for years. And I took my church team. And, and so I spent about a good week with him. So I had a little bit of connection to, to Pastor Kim. But what was so striking to me in that funeral that night was that three adult men, three grown men, I think at least in their 50s and 60s, had gone up to give their eulogies. And I have never in my young life attending funerals, first of all, I have never seen like just all grown men, elderly men, give eulogies. And I have never also seen that these grown men were so emotional and in tears as they give their eulogies. And that the final eulogy was given by the succeeding missionary. When Jason's father was sick a few years ago, and he had lost completely his sight, and his health was deteriorating, he was forced to retire, and this, minister, uh, this missionary succeeded him. And as a part of his eulogy that night, he brought handwritten letters, or he brought letters written by the Guatemalan native pastors in the local churches in the community that he had served in. And he had translated those letters and he began to read them. And every one of those letters pointed to the humble character and the genuine love that missionary Kim had for the entire community. Every single one of them conveyed his love for God and his unending, undying love for the people of Guatemala. And what was notable was that he was so intentional about preser preserving their dignity, preserving their identity in their national, this kind of culture. And, the, and this man talked about how missionary Kim was repeatedly cheated by the building contractors because he's a foreigner. And they refused to contest these pricings. No, 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 I refuse to fight. I refuse to argue with them because this is their business. We're in their land. And then one time a short-term team came to them and said, saw that the school that he operated, they, were, they didn't have, to have a, a copier. So he said, hey, you know, pastor, we want to donate a copier. And he, Jason's father had denied the act and when asked the reason why, 
he wouldn't take the copier uh, part of donation. He says, if we have in this school then a copier, then all the, the businesses surrounding them who make a living by providing copying services will be out of business. And, and, and I'm sure there's so many stories, but the inherent characteristics were so evident. This man is a humble man. This man was a sacrifice, I mean, generous man when he came to the love of Christ. And every single one of these guys referred to him as Edmano Kim or Edmano, his first name. I'm I just leaving my mind right now. And I don't know why, as I was listening to these eulogies, I was getting wrecked. <laughs> I was crying. Not even the, not out of the sadness of him passing. I was crying because the fear of God has set in. It's like, God, what is my mark going to be? What is my legacy going to be? And I began to like say, God, please. God. And right at that moment, my wife turned to me and said, hey, honey, this is just like Apostle Paul's letters. It's like, oh my gosh, you're right. All these individual accounts, it's like letters in the New Testament, like they're saying these things. And I began to pray, say, God, I don't have, I don't have a mission field. It's like, but God, like rooftop is my Guatemala. And I began to see every single one of you. I began to imagine every single one of your as, as, as these local church pastors, I said, God, what impact am I making? God, what letters have I been writing? What have I been imprinting? What have I been imparting, knowing and not knowingly? Because I think the greatest challenge for being a pastor is not just preaching once a, once a week on the pulpit. It's not just giving you guidance and counseling, whatever. You know, I do that all the time with you guys. It's not just loving on you guys. It's not. You know, the greatest burden, for, at least for me, as a, as a flawed, a messed up pastor, is that I have to attend to my personal life. I have to be faithful to God and humble before God. Because how I live my life impacts those that I lead. And I pray to God, say, God, teach me to be a better husband. God, please preserve my marriage. God, teach me, lead me to be a better because I can't do it on my own because how I attend to my marriage is, is, serve, is being served as a prefigurement of all the marriages of the people that I lead. God, teach me, groom me, train me so that I could be a better father because the way I father I know God. It being shown as an example to everyone that I lead. Your life has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I want you to first identify that the life that you live is precious because God, the creator of the universe, has an 
paid an immense price for it. And I pray that you would receive a great humility and even joy. And certainly with a sense of responsibility, God, help me to steward this life well. Impact. We boldly live out our faith in Jesus Christ, making an impact both now and eternally. Concentric leadership, it starts with me. And whether we know it or not, want it or not, every time you speak, every time you move, it has a rippling effect. What are those impact and influences going to be? I submit to you, may we humble ourselves. May our hearts and lives be filled with the fear of God. We come trembling and we ask God to help us along the way. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we do not deny, we do not reject this reality. We do not push away the calling that you have given to us both as individuals and as a corporate body. But God, we do pray, help us. Help us to be more like you. Help us to be adequate leaders, Lord. Help us to be better in leading our families. God, help us to be even more sanctified and refined. Draw us closer to you.